Well, good morning, New Life Fellowship. It's really good to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, thank you so much to Sally for sharing your story. Man, so vulnerable, so transparent. And so I, I was definitely blessed. Pastor Derek leaned over to me. He was like, this is amazing testimony. And um, and yeah, so thank you so much. I don't know if Sally's here, but thank you so much. Um, well, we have been in a sermon series called Gifts for the Goat. And this Advent series and this Christmas, we are asking Jesus, what do you want for Christmas? Uh, what would you like? And there are specific passages in Scripture that specifically tell us what God wants. And last week, we looked at Hosea 6.6, 6, and we talked about the knowledge of God and steadfast love. And if you missed that, uh, and you're wondering what those two words, uh, those two phrases mean, uh, you can go back and listen to, the, to that sermon from last week. This week, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. Uh, and also, we're going to be looking at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, because they say uh, very similar things. Uh, but let me go ahead and just read verse 3 and 4 to you of 1 Timothy. Uh, that'll kind of set the course for the rest of this sermon. Uh, this is what Paul says to the young pastor Timothy. He says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants, he wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so with that said, uh, would you all rise with me as we read God's word together? Uh, I'll read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, and then I'll skip down to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you respond with thanks be to God, I'll pray. And then, uh, actually, I won't pray, but I'll just teach you after the reading of God's word. We'll jump into this. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases our God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. And then let's move down to Second Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, and some, uh, uh, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. You can go ahead and be seated. Well, we have three points. Uh, the first point is called a different success. Uh, uh, the second point is called a different approach. And then finally, we're going to be looking at a different life. Okay. Uh, let's dive into our first point, a different success. Okay. Here's a question that emerged immediately as I began reading this passage, right? If God wants everyone to be saved, and if God doesn't want anyone to perish, why doesn't he just save everyone? Right? Why doesn't he just do it, uh, save everyone? Because doesn't God get what God wants? Doesn't he get what God wants? And here's the answer, okay? Are you ready? Okay, this answer is going to blow your minds, okay? I think, you, I think it'll just shatter all of your expectations, okay? Here's the answer, okay? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But here's the thing, okay? Just because we don't know doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't want this. Do you know what I'm saying? I think just because sometimes we don't see this manifesting in the way we wanted to see it, we just think Jesus doesn't want this as much as we do. But here's the reality. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't want this. In fact, I would argue that Jesus wants this more than you. He wants this more than I do. And yet sometimes in our minds, we get mixed up because of verses like this that we think, oh, Jesus doesn't want this as much as I do. 
I, I really want people, I really want my mom, I really want my dad, I want my friends, I want my cousins, whatever, my, my coworkers to be saved. I want this more than Jesus. And Jesus would say, no, 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 I want this more than you. Look, even though we don't know, let, let's kind of look at it this way, okay? There's, uh, just to kind of help you digest some of this, uh, God, in, in the scriptures, there's kind of three descriptions of God's will. Okay, so there's what they call the sovereign will, which is his decreative will, which is at creation, right? When we see him speaking creation into existence, this is what we call his sovereign will. Whatever he says is done. But then there's something called his preceptive will, uh, uh, which is what, uh, what, which is his precepts or his laws, right? Things that he desires his people to do, that's his desire, uh, but we disobey. And we can actually break these kinds of wills of God. This is what we talked about last week. He desires steadfast love, but we can say, no, 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 I don't want to give you that steadfast love. And then finally, his last will is what we call the will of disposition. And this is the basic disposition of God. And so sometimes God can act in a way, and yet his will of disposition could be in a different direction. For example, God does not delight in the death of the wicked or the punishment of evildoers, but he still decrees their punishment at times. And so we know that God has a will of disposition and it is in this third sense that we believe Paul is using in 1 Timothy 2. That God's will of disposition is that everyone be saved. In, 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 in another way of looking at this, right, you have to remember that Paul's backdrop, his cultural backdrop is one of that, that the Jewish people were only saved. Right? He came from a context where they're saying only the Jewish people are saved, but now Paul is saying, look, not just only the Jewish people, but God desires all people to be saved. But again, here's the point. I think as Christians, we get into our heads and sometimes we think that we want, we want people to be saved more than Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, I want people to be saved more than you do. I tried my hardest to find this clip, but uh, I was unable to. But um, it, it goes something like this, okay? And there's a lot of different stories that kind of look like this. But I, I remember watching this interview between a football athlete, a professional football athlete, and a journalist. And the journalist said something to this effect to the professional athlete. Um, they said, hey, like, what do you have to say to the fans? You know, the fans really wanted this win. And, and the, you could see the, the professional athlete, like, he, he just kind of lit up. He's like, they want the win? He's like, I want to win. He's like, don't you think I want to win? I put my body out there on the line. I, my, my head gets cracked every single time I play football. Like, I want this win more than them. Have you ever considered that I want to win? I, I do practices, I sweat, I do all this stuff, right? Don't you think I would like to win? And of course, as you can imagine, this was not taken well by the fans. But nonetheless, as, as somebody who played football myself, I kind of resonated with that. I was like, yeah, like, it's true. Like, he puts his body out on the line. He put his head on the line. He puts everything out on the line. And all the fans have to do is sit back and watch. Did you know that God wants all people to be saved more than you? In fact, this is what Christmas is all about, right? Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She, that's Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will what? Save his people from their sins. His purpose of coming to earth was to save us, right? Uh, look at Luke 19.10. We've talked about this many times. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That was the very purpose by which he came to earth was to seek and save the lost. Uh, John 3.16, we all know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have e eternal life. This is the reason why he came. He put his body on the line. He was pierced. He was crucified. So what? He could save us. If there's anyone in the world who can claim he wants salvation for all people, it is Christ himself. Look, I just want to address, if you're not a believer here or if you're seeking Christ, we're so glad that you're here. Again, as I say almost every week, to sit in a room with people who disagree with you and where you disagree with them, I mean, that is courageous, that is bold, and I'm so glad that you're here. 
If you're not a believer yet, one of the things that we believe here at this church and one of the things that I believe is that the very reason why you're sitting in this room, I don't know how you got here, I don't know why you're here, but all of the different reasons that had to have happened, all the uh, different meetings, all the different conversations, all the different events that had happened in your life happened for a reason because Jesus wants you here. And he wants you here because he wants to tell you something. He wants to tell you that he loves you and that he cares deeply about you and that he wants to see you in a relationship with himself. Look, we'll talk about the love of God later on towards the end of our sermon, but Christian, let me address you now. In 2 Peter, let's move to our passage in 2 Peter. In, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, look at what Peter says. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. So he's basically saying, God ain't slow. He says, instead, he's patient. He's not slow, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And here's what Peter is saying. Do you realize that the only reason Jesus does not come back right now The only reason why you and I have breath in our bodies is because we are here for missions. We are here. We live this life for evangelism. That is the only reason you and I exist here on planet earth. Christian, the sole purpose for why you and I still have breath in our bodies, the sole reason why we live on this earth is for missions. Look, don't get me wrong, okay? For those of you who are theologically astute, okay? Of course, the purpose of our existence is worship. But the purpose of why we are here on earth is for missions. This is why we're not in heaven. This is why we're not with Jesus yet. It's because we're here on missions. You do not exist on earth to climb up the corporate ladder. You do not exist on earth to make sure you leave behind the legacy. You do not exist on earth to check off a bucket list. You exist on earth to proclaim Christ on missions. That's that's it. That's all we're here for. And I don't say these things to guilt you. I say these things as a way of reminder. Even myself, I'm preaching this to myself. I get caught up in my day-to-day life. I get caught up in all the different things that I have to do. I have to think about this church. And sometimes even when I think about this church, I'm not thinking about it evangelistically. I think about it in terms of worldly perspectives. And yet the very purpose why New Life Fellowship exists is to be a Christ-centered community that expands the kingdom of God by making disciples. We're here for missions. That's why our church exists. We're here to reach the non-believer. We're here to reach the people who are not here yet. In other words, this should wildly change our notions of success. Your notions of success are not to climb up the corporate ladder, but rather to go out and to reach the lost sheep. You know, on May 20th of 2000, John Piper, he gave one of his most viral sermons ever. In fact, they kind of coined it the seashells message. And this seashells message was turned into a book called Don't Waste Your Life. And I'm going to read from you an excerpt. And it's, you know, if you know John Piper and if you've listened to it, he's very extreme. But I think his extremeness kind of brings out something that we don't think about every day. And honestly, for me personally, when I read this sermon again, I was struck. I was like, I need to hear this. And so if you if you feel rebuked inside, just know that this is for me. This is for Eric. And if you happen to feel rebuked or blessed by it, like just know that that's for you. That's from God to you. Listen to what John Piper says. He says, three weeks ago. And, oh, and by the way, this is to young people. He's preaching at like a Coachella for like Christians. Like they had like a concert and he came out and gave a message, right? They're all these young people, 20s and 30s. But he says this, uh, he says this, three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities and in her retirement partnering up with Ruby, She was also pushing 80 and going from village to village in Cameroon. 
the brakes give way. Over a cliff they go, and they're dead instantly. And I asked my people, at his, at, this was at his church, he said, I asked my people, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, almost a whole life devoted to one idea. Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had began, begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, they flew in, uh, fly into eternity with a death in moment. Is this a tragedy? I asked. This is what John Piper goes on to say. It is not a tragedy. He says, I'll read you what a tragedy is. He pulled out a page from Reader's Digest. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy. And there are people in this country that are sp uh, spending billions of dollars to, uh, to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. As the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. John Piper later on goes on to say, don't waste your life. Man, this struck me. I mean, I love my, I love my golf swing, by the way. I love my, I love my pleasures. And John Piper is calling us again to have a different perspective of the world because our existence here on earth is not for anything else but to be on mission for God. This leads us to our second point, a different approach, okay? So how, how do we go about living this missional life? And I believe Paul gives us a directed and pointed um, uh, steps in terms of living out this missional life, okay? Let's go back to the beginning of this passage. Okay, look at verse one. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. This word urge is like begging. And he gives four words here, petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. And these four words are basically him saying, pray, 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 pray. He's basically saying, I urge you, pray, 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 pray. Do you hear the urgency, the desperation? He's saying the first move is not to learn a bunch of theology and be able to defend the faith uh, with logic with logic and philosophy and Bible and all this stuff, he's saying the first move for us living this missional life is to pray, is to seek God. You know, I, I think for a lot of us, we we think of that verse in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, right? Where it says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And people interpret this verse to mean that you should be able to defend your faith. And of course, there is some truth to that. But if you go back and you read the context of 1 Peter, what he's saying is this. He's saying, live a life of character. Live a good life that God has commanded you to do. And what's going to happen is if you live a life devoted to Christ, you're going to suffer. People will persecute you for your goodness. And he says, when people persecute you for your goodness, they're going to ask you, why do you live this way? And Peter says, you should be able to give the reasons for the hope in which why you live. And so if you Sabbath and your friends are like, why do you worship? You could be watching NFL. Give, give the reasons for that, right? If you're giving away charitably and someone asks you, why, why are you so charitable? Are you sure why you do that? If, someone's, if you're serving at church and someone notices and they ask you about it, just be prepared to share why you do it. But you see, friends, Paul here doesn't say any of that. Paul says, pray, 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 pray. And you see, it's not about being winsome or, or uh, you know, being able to win people over through your words or through your logic or through your mind. It is simply being weak and desperate on your knees in prayer. 
You know, when we talk about the great revivals in church history, you know, I'm not talking about those revivals you see on YouTube or TVN where like you see these pastors in, you know, white suits and they're, you know, slaying people in the spirit, right? They're like, you know, ah, and then all the people follow. That's not the revivals I'm talking about. I'm talking about actual revivals where the spirit of God moved and people were moved to conversion and churches were planted like crazy. And almost virtually every single revival that I've studied personally has started with prayer. Not because a great preacher arrived, not because of a great missionary that arrived, not because of anything else, but people who were praying. Let me just give you a few examples. The first great awakening was a revival right here in America back in the 1700s. It was led uh, by people like George Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards. But do you know what preceded Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield? It was a group of people who were praying. People who were spiritually hungry for God again. And they just started praying and praying and praying. The Welsh Revival was another great revival. And it was sparked by, guess this, a bunch of young people, not old people, young people who got on their knees and prayed and engaged in prayers for months and months and months. And then finally a revival broke out. The Korean Pentecost or the Korean Revival, right? It, it started, why? Because of a group of Koreans who got on their knees and prayed and prayed and prayed. And from that prayer service moved out into, into South Korea and into North Korea, all over Korea, this great revival that spread for the next 50 to 100 years. It wasn't led by a bunch of people who knew how to defend the faith. It was a bunch of people who could pray. You know, our staff these last uh, few weeks and last few months have been so encouraged, church, We've been seeing you come out to our Saturday 7 a.m. morning prayer service, praying for non-believers, praying for Alpha. In January, we're going to start Alpha again, which is our, uh, which is our missional program to reach out to non-believers. We encourage you to invite your non-believing friends to Alpha. Uh, it'll start in January. And, but at the same time, we're asking you, church, to come out Saturday morning, 7 a.m., to pray for these non-believers. Pray that they might receive Christ. Pray that they might come to the knowledge of His love and of His grace. Now look, look, this prayer thing, let's take it deeper now because Paul takes it deeper. This, this is crazy, okay? Paul's going to take prayer. He's going to shove it deeper now, okay? Look at this, okay? Look at verse 2. Look at who he tells us to pray for. He says, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. He wants us to pray for kings and all those in authority. Election year is coming up, 2024. Ooh, this is a good passage to preach on. Do you know why Paul says to pray for the kings and authorities specifically? Look at what John Calvin says. Look at what he says here. He expressly mentions kings and other magistrates because more than all others, they might be hated by Christians. In 1 Timothy, one of the things that's going on is the church is persecuted by kings and by authorities. And Paul is saying, pray for your enemies. Do you know how much Jesus desires that all peoples be saved? He's saying he desires it so much that he wants your enemies to be saved. When's the last time you prayed for those you hate to be saved in heaven with you forever? The cousin you can't even look it in the face because you hate that cousin so much. Or that person you hate so much, you can't even look at their Facebook profile because you hate them so much. Jesus says, I want to save them so that they're in heaven with you forever and ever and ever. When's the last time you prayed for the people you hate to come to know Jesus? Your unbelieving boss or manager who's a complete and utter jerk to you. Your unbelieving friend who you've now defriended on Instagram and Facebook. Your unbelieving cousin who every Thanksgiving has to talk about politics and, you're, and he has to prove to you that he's right and you're wrong. That cousin, Jesus wants you to pray for. 
And look at how Jesus wants you to pray for it. In verse one, he uses these four words, right? Petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. And of course, he's generally talking about prayer, but each one is a facet of prayer. With prayers and petitions, he's basically saying, pray for them repeatedly again and again and again. Just like me as a child, when my dad wasn't a believer, my mom every night would tell me, pray for your dad, pray for your dad. And so this was my prayer growing up every night, every night for like 10 years. It was like, dear Lord, thank you for this day. Uh, please help my dad stop smoking cigarettes and please help him to come to know the Lord. That was my prayer for like 10 years. This is what Paul is asking us to pray for. The second thing Paul tells us is intercessions. In other words, he's saying, uh, you have desires. Your enemies have desires. Pray for their desires. Pray like they're your own desires. So if you hate them, but they want a good family, they want a good wife, they want a good house, pray that they might receive those things. Intercede on their behalf. And then the last thing is he says, thank God for them. Thank God for your enemies. Thank God that they're in your life. Thank God that they they have breath in their bodies. Thank God that your enemies are there. He says, pray in this way. And if we pray in this way, friends, it leads us to our third and final point, a different life. This kind of prayer life will produce a different kind of living. Look at me at verse three again, okay? Look at the ending part of verse three. Look at the kind of life that it'll produce. He says that or so that, right? Pray, okay, do these prayers for what? So that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. In other words, the result of this kind of prayer life is a life that is radically attractive to an unbelieving world. You know, it's interesting, this word, this phrase for peace and quiet is actually, the reason why Paul uses this language is because these were ideals in the Roman and Greek world that were really high ideals. Like Romans and Greeks, they were like, what's a good life? A good life is peace and quiet. And so in in some sense, what he's saying is, look, this kind of prayer life is going to produce a radically attractive life to a, a watching world. But do you know what this peace and quiet is that he's talking about? What he's talking about with peace and quiet is not living out on a farm, okay, in rural America where no neighbors for a stretch of 50 miles, right? He's not saying that kind of life or in life where there's no noisy kids, where there's no noisy uh, husband or wife or whatever, right? He's talking about this. He's saying a life free from conflict. Think about that time, right? In America, we haven't had a war on American soil for 130 years. Okay, some of you might argue 9-11 was on our soil, okay? But, but nonetheless, like that was a one-off and that was crazy for us, right? But 130 years, we haven't had a war on American soil, which is why for us as Americans, we, when we think about peace, we think about internal tranquility and peace, like kind of like Buddhism, right? Like, oh, okay, just have no stress, have no anxiety, but that's not peace to the ancients. Peace in the ancients was free from conflicts, free from p- people kind of trying to take over you, free from people oppressing you, pr- free from these kinds of things. He's saying be free from conflict, both externally, which is why he used that word peaceful, that, that's external conflict, but he's also saying internal quietness, this internal conflict where you're not angry at people, where you're not like, because you might be free of conflict, right? You might be like, oh, I don't have no beef with anybody, but when you go back home, you're like, oh, I hated what Bob and Susie said to me today. You just, you know, you're, you're turned up inside. He says, be free of that both externally as well as internally in your life. And doesn't this make sense in light of the context we just talked about? That if you pray for even your enemies, your life will be filled with peace. Because here's the reality, you will forgive them and you will love them. And in order to love well, you need to practice love. In order to have peace, you need to practice peace. And a life where your external life is filled with peace is now a life filled with tranquility and quiet. I can tell you when my wife and I fight, our house is noisy. 
it is noisy. We're like, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, right? And then our kids always come to us. They're like, stop fighting. It's too loud, right? So sad. I'm like, yeah, but I'm angry at your mom right now, you know? But when there's peace in the house between us, it's quiet. Like last night, we put up our Christmas lights. Right, it was peace. Peace and quiet. We were hanging up the Christmas lights, just talking about our day together. Peace and quiet last night. Christian, is your life loud? Is it noisy? Is it unquieted, filled with conflict? Is your life such that you don't just watch dramas on TV or in movies, but your life is filled with drama? Is your life filled with turmoil and arguments? Is your soul conflicted because you're so angry about other people and so you gossip about them behind their back? Is your life filled with conflict? And here's the amazing thing, right? What Paul is saying here is that the way our lives can be look drastically different is not through your addictions or through your sin or all that. Of course, you're going to have that transformation. But Paul is saying the greatest difference our lives can look like is a life of peace and quiet, free from conflict from other people. The one factor that distinguishes Christians from the rest of the world is our ability to be at peace with everyone around us. Um, you guys remember the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. Do you remember what one of the Beatitudes are? It'll be up here on the screens. Jesus says this, blessed are the what? The peacemakers, for they will be called what? The children of God. In other words, he's saying that, right, your, your children look like you. And the, the times that you look most like God is when you're creating peace on earth. When you're actually peacemakers. This is the defining uh, feature of God himself is that he's a God of peace. Look, look at what it goes on to say, right, in 1 Timothy. He says this in verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. What does a mediator do? They create peace. This is the gospel. This is why, why Jesus Christ came, because there was enmity between us and God. God, we were, Romans tells us we were enemies of God. God was going to pour out his wrath upon us, but Jesus stepped into the middle as a mediator and created peace so that we could now have a loving relationship with God himself. This is the gospel. This is why Jesus came. And for us, this is the defining feature of our lives is to be people of peace and quiet. Now look at this, okay? How do we obtain, how do we obtain this kind of peace, okay? Look, look, look further, okay? He says, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, okay? Here's what I think is going on here with this verse, okay? Look at this little um, uh, uh, slide that I created, okay? This is, this is Eric's uh, artwork here. Can you guys see this? Okay. Okay, imagine here, okay? Prayer, okay? The prayer, that persistent prayer, right? That's a seed you plant in the ground, Okay. Uh, but then imagine that that seed bursts up into a plant and what's the product of that praying life? The product of that praying life, he says, is godly and holy living. Godly and holy living. And then he says, inside that godly living is a coffee bean. And that coffee bean represents peace and quiet. Peace and quiet. So inside of a godly and holy life is contained peace and quiet. So in other words, if you want a peace and quiet life, you have to live a godly and holy life, which then is produced because of your prayer life. That word godliness means to be devout, practice, to be devout in your practice and appropriate beliefs about God. It is, in other words, knowing God and living that out in your daily life. Here's what's interesting, okay? That word holy, I don't know why certain translators translate it holy, but a, a vast majority of times when this word is translated, it's not translated holy. It's actually translated respectable, respectability. 
So he's saying godly and respectability. And he's saying you got to hold these two things in tension because these two things sometimes are in tension with one another. Because here's the reality. You could live godly lives and yet be disobedient to God. And yet you could live respectable lives and not godly lives and you could be disobedient to God. Let me give you an example, right? There's a wave of Christians, right, who appear to be very godly, very bold, very courageous. And they will go on Twitter and they say, I speak the truth. I only fear God. I don't fear man, so I'll tell you like it is. Because I'm godly. I will tell you. And they go on tirades against sinners. And these Christians are embroiled in online fights on Twitter. They're embroiled in fights amongst their friend groups. They Sure, they may be godly, but they aren't respectable. You see, Paul pairs these two words together, godly and respectable, because they go hand in hand. And living godly and respectable lives is what would create a radically different life. Because you can be godly, but not respectable. You can know all there is to know about the Bible, but be an absolute jerk. Do you know that? I don't know if you remember, but in the Gospels, do you remember what Jesus calls them? He calls them Pharisees. The Pharisees were always fighting with people. In fact, this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much of what? A child of hell. You remember what he said? Children of God make peace, but Pharisees make children of hell. Why? Because Pharisees were always embroiled with conflict and fights and fighting other people. And part of the reason why they were embroiled in all of these fights is because Pharisees did not respect other people. The way you become respectable is when you actually respect everyone around you. There are some of us in this room, including myself, I throw myself into this camp. We're we're pious, we do all the prayers, we do all the things, and we look around us and no one respects us. Our wives don't respect us. Our husbands don't respect us. Our kids don't respect us. Our friends don't respect us. Yeah, we're godly. No one respects you. This is why people look at Christianity. They're like, this is unattractive to me. Why would I want to worship your God? You seem like an angry, bitter, conflicted person. I would never want this kind of faith. But here's the other side of the spectrum. Some of us in here are respectable, but not godly. There are some of us who respect everyone, but we're not godly. And so we change our behaviors. We change our beliefs. And do you know what this is called in the gospels? It's called Peter. Do you remember Peter? Peter's like, you're the Messiah, Christ. He's like, I will die with you, Jesus. And then then literally right after that, what what is he found doing, right? He's talking to a 13-year-old girl and the girl's like, aren't you the guy who followed Jesus? He's like, no, 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 that's not me. Who are you talking about? What are you talking about? While Jesus is getting crucified on the cross. Do you know who was godly and respectful? It was Jesus. It's interesting though, because he was the most godly person on planet earth and yet people respected him. You know what's the, 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 the best picture in the Gospels for me is of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, a king, a ruler who had all authority on, on, in that land. Right? He comes before Jesus and he's like, bro, you, you're kind of crazy. You're saying things that are funny, but you know what Pontius Pilate says? It's like, I find no fault in you though. Yeah, sure, you say wild things like you're God and all this stuff, but like, I find no fault in you. In other words, what Pontius Pilate was saying was like, yes, I disagree with your godliness, but at the same time, I respect you. You're not doing anything wrong. And I don't want to crucify you either, so I'm going to wash my hands here. The only people that wanted to quarrel with Jesus were the religious leaders. And the religious people were, were the ones who crucified him. The so-called godly people are the ones who denied Jesus and the ones who cursed him. And yet, at the same time, Jesus was godly. If you remember, he ate with tax collectors and sinners and he did not leave them that way. 
Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus' story, right? He was, he was a sinner. He was a chief of tax collector. And yet he was godly and respectable. And what happened? Did he leave Zacchaeus the way he was? No. He transformed Zacchaeus' life upside down. He became a stingy Scrooge into a generous, loving human being. Jesus Christ was godly and respectable. And if you want to live a life of peace with everyone around you, we have to look towards godliness and respectability. Friends, isn't this the gospel? Even the message of the gospel contains this. Where the gospel on one hand is godly, it is the message that, hey, we are all sinners and we deserve nothing but the wrath of God. We are enemies of God. We deserve his punishment. We don't actually deserve anything else but that. This is the godly message of the gospel, that we fail to live up to the godly standards. And yet the gospel is simultaneously respectable. Why? Because Jesus says, I'm going to come. I'm going to take your place and I'm going to love you. I want you to know that I've come to take your place. And this is why so many people are attracted to the gospel. Why? Because it is both godly. It tells the truth about our situation. But at the same time, it reminds us of the unending love of Jesus Christ and his love towards us. Godliness is knowing that there's one truth that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And yet it is respectable because this Lord of all loves you so deeply that he would give his very own life for you. And isn't this what Christmas is all about? It is the truth that God came to earth as a little infant, as a weak baby. And he came and he died on a cross for you and me so that, so that he could love us. And in return, we might love him. And so if you're a Christian in here, if you want to make the uh, gospel attractive, begin with a life of prayer. Begin with a life of prayer. And from that life of prayer will emerge godliness and respectability. And from that godliness and respectability, you will find peace and quiet in all of the relationships around you. Amen, friends. Let's pray.